Find your way in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We don't want the page number tonight. I got your dad's Bible along tonight. It's it's the it's the large print version. <laughs> so do I. John, you're gonna John, you're gonna live. You should sit on the chair instead of between the chairs. It would feel a lot better. <laughs> All right. Acts chapter 13 in your Bibles. And uh, right around verse 25, 26, I remember leaving off there. Something about John the baptizer not worthy to loose the sandals of the Messiah who would come. Is that where we were at? Wow. Excellent. Have you guys thought about putting her in charge of the kitchen organization and checklist and what groceries you need each week? No. Okay. <laughs> you just got to tell her where you left off and give her the list. So, All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. Lord, as we've studied through Acts, we see your Holy Spirit right from the beginning, and uh, we see in the history of the church. Lord, we love Acts 13 to see how your Holy Spirit sent Saul and Barnabas out. Your Holy Spirit leading, guiding. We see the power against the opposition of the enemy. We see, Lord, the great personal cost, and, and even those leaving the ministry, Lord, how the work continued. We're asking and praying tonight that you would teach us by the Holy Spirit, that we'd understand, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of you. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so with your left finger in Acts chapter 13, verse 26, again, uh, keep that there and find your way over to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, when I mention that, who knows what that chapter is about? That's the end of it. What's, what, what leads up to that statement? 1 Corinthians 15. Well, that's the resurrection. Resurrection of Christ. The resurrection life. What it is to live that resurrection life. What it is to trust and believe and wait. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we come to this place. Um, let's be honest. Acts 13. Paul's written none of the Bible yet in Acts chapter 13. He, he hasn't even begun to write the Bible in Acts chapter 13. He hasn't even been to the places where he's going to write letters to the people that he's going to write to. But he's handling the scriptures. He's, he's been taught by the Lord himself. The Holy Spirit has sent him out. He's been teaching the church in Antioch for a year and a half. He's teaching the Gentiles the word of God. Well, we come to this place, and again, uh, left finger in Acts 13, 13, 26. Just take a look at that. Uh, he brought up Jesus in, in verse 24, and then in verse 26, he describes and all that he was called upon to exhort the people concerning the reading of the law and the prophets there in the synagogue. And as he declares it, he says now, and he, 16, or 26 is right where I want to pick up. He begins to address the men in the synagogue. Now, were there women in the synagogue? Not amongst the Jews, right? That was the men and brethren. And you'll, you'll see that as he addresses them, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. Interesting phrase, isn't it? You know, he is clearly 
addressing in the synagogue the Jews that are there who have been reading the law and the prophets thousands of years. You do realize by the time this is already, when you're reading Moses in the time of Jesus, that's 2,000 years old. Just a, a, a good, well, handle, at least 1,500, that's probably more accurate, right, years old. Concerning that, which they're reading week in and week out, men and brethren of the children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Now, as Paul opens this up, and, and, and this is our understanding, there were others who came into the synagogue. And there, there were others than the Jewish men that were there. There are Gentiles who are there who, who want to hear the things uh, of, of God. And as the exhortation begins, and he gets onto this phrase, to you this word, the word of this salvation has been sent. Now, I love the study of the Gospel of John, right? As I, as I introduce that, and you can find your way to 1 Corinthians, because we'll be back, and I'm going to, uh, as you're thinking uh, upon where we're going in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4, so you can draw your attention there. But listen to me on this. The, the clear understanding of the Gospel of John is that, is that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that Jesus is divine, the word became flesh, made us dwelling among us. And, and one of the fun things you can do now when you have digital Bibles, where, where we have the scripture where you can actually, God bless you. Because you're saved. Right? You have Jesus in your heart. Yeah, God bless you. You don't want to bless someone sneezing if they're not going to heaven, right? All right. So one of the things we have, you can, you can study this out. And, and very clearly, this, this is the theme, right? The Gospel of John was written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing on him, you may have life in his name, John 20, 31. One of the key things of the Gospel of John is that Jesus clearly says, the Father sent me, and, and, and the Son was sent by the Father. And, and there was a sending work of God. There was, there was this, this clear understanding that Jesus was sent into the world to die. And then Jesus clearly gives the understanding, he must go away so the Holy Spirit can be sent. John 15 and 16. And he says, it's good that I go away. So when I go away, then the Father will send the Holy Spirit. We come to Acts 13, and and we need to understand clearly, the Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas. Now the church laid hands on and agreed Right? The church laid hands, they're in Antioch, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit sent them out. Now, what did he send them out with? Verse 26, the word of salvation has been sent. The gospel, the word of salvation. And, and again, you can, you can sit and, and think about this and you're like, how do you get the word of salvation out of the law and the prophets? Well, I'll tell you what. In the apostles' doctrine, as they, as they, the ministry of the word, and we've looked in the study of the book of Acts, and when they're going out to preach Christ, they're preaching that in Christ Jesus you can be saved. There's, there's a, there's a very clear work at this, and and so the emphasis that I'm bringing to us tonight, this word of salvation has been sent. Well, how was it sent? By sending out the men, right? Sending out. Paul and Barnabas. I love those 
missionaries. We call them missionaries, but they're the same thing. They got alone with God. They heard from God. They believed God, and, and they were sent. So we talk about that. We talk about those that went into Africa. We talk about those that went to China because they didn't have the gospel there yet. We talk about those who would pick you know, this part of South, South America, and then you have others who would go out to like Papua New Guinea. That's, that's in the 70s, going out to Papua New Guinea to get them the Word of God. And, and these, these are the things. Very clearly, like the idea of being sent. Now, I, I think now the, the mindset really has become, and, and I'll, again, I'll blame in the modern world, really, I'll blame the world's influence upon the church to change the concepts, like the idea that now people should come, unbelievers should come to church rather than the believers being sent out. And that's what it's been all throughout time, is the believers gather in to worship God, serve God, hear from God, and then they're sent out to preach Christ. Well, Paul, in in showing up at the synagogue, the word of this salvation has been sent. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.3. If you want textbook definitions and you want to read like a dictionary, I always talk to people, I said, you sound like a website. All you're doing is regurgitating information to me. I, I'm not interested in just hearing what you know. Because if I want to know something, what do I do nowadays? You look it up. In fact, some of you have a hard time not looking something up if you don't know it because you've got to know it because it's available. But do you remember the days when you didn't know everything? You still don't. But we think we do, Right? We think we know, and, and we might even have a dictionary definition. This word of salvation, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's going to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he does not hang it upon thin air. 1 Corinthians 15:3, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Now, he tells the church of Rome that the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, Romans 1:16. Okay. In that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven to men, from faith to faith. It's, it's the gospel that came forth. The Jesus came forth from heaven. The gospel came forth to mankind. And, and as I bring this up in 13, I, this is what we're doing when we're sent out to preach Christ. Now, we don't always get to do everything we want to do when we go out to preach Christ. I mean, there are many things that you, you see happen. The Apostle Paul, he's going to find opposition. He is going to go into places and he's only going to be allowed to go so far. When he's on Mars Hill, we'll study that later on, he's amongst all the philosophers and he can talk amongst the philosophers until he brings up what we're going to bring up next in 1 Corinthians 15. 15, 15.4, he says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You'll you'll catch it. According to the scriptures in 3, according to the scriptures in 4. He doesn't hang it upon nothing. Now, is that a double negative? He doesn't hang it. He hangs it upon something. How's that? He hangs this upon what the law and the prophets has been talking about all along. He's in the synagogue. He's exhorting the people. He's bringing them through this to give them the understanding of why he's there and what he's been sent with. He's been sent with the word of salvation. Now, when he was on Mars Hill and brought the word of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was the gong show. If you remember that, you remember the gong show? That there would be talent or lack of talent, singing, playing, whatever they were doing, and then 
The real fun part was one of the celebrity judges would get up and go and bang the gong, and that's it. We don't want to hear you anymore. That's what happens to Paul on Mars Hill. It's a horrible name for a church in these days. You understand that? What happened in Mars Hill was taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, the supernatural predicted, fulfilled prophecy of one coming back from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was scoffed and mocked and gonged away amongst the philosophers of this world. I never named the church Mars Hill. I don't even want to be on Mars Hill. You see what I mean? I mean, so you, what we're coming to is, is this place. Now, I, I, I want to lay this out. And when I came across First, first Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and this, if you want to know what it is, it's the gospel. Verse 2 says, this is the gospel, right? By which ye are saved. Okay, so verse 1, I declare unto you, right? I preached unto you, this is the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to what the scriptures said, and it's for what intent? Well, Paul tells us, the word of salvation. He, he says in two, you received that and you were saved. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, Acts 13 is the first time out. This is the first time we get to hear what Paul preaches. Now, you think the Holy Spirit is going to repeat this every time he goes somewhere? No. Acts 13 for me is, this is how, this is how the Holy Spirit did it. This is the word of salvation sent. What's he preaching? He's preaching the gospel. What did he preach to the Corinthians? The gospel. That's how they were saved. What did he preach to the Romans? He says, I long to preach the gospel to those of you who are at Rome. And you realize when he was getting to Rome, what was he desiring? I want to go where the gospel hasn't been preached. He had his eyes set, and we're told he had his eyes set on getting to Spain to preach Christ in Spain. And if he could have lived long enough and there was a way to get there, where would he have gone? Wherever he could have gone to take this gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he said that he desired to preach Christ where Christ had not been preached so he, could, he would not be building on another man's foundation. Dr. Livingston, I referenced him before, goes into Africa. By the way, great read, read up on his life. His children were seven years apart in age because he furloughed every seven years. Right? So he had a seven-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 21-year-old. That's when he came back and saw his wife. And then he was back sent into Africa to take the gospel. And when, who's, who's the guy who found him? Because it's Dr. Livingston, I presume. Who's the other guy? Livingston and... So when he shows up, and they're like, okay, we can serve together. And Dr. Livingston says, no. He hands him the key. He says, you take over here. I'm going, where, I'm going where Christ hasn't been preached. And it's a great testimony to read how when he died of malaria, when he died in Africa... The, the, the believers in Africa, they took out his heart and they sent his body back to be buried by, his, you know, one day would be buried by his wife back in England. And they said his body belongs to England, but his heart belongs to Africa. That type of man, right? And, and it was just that Paul would have continued. Now, I love what Paul does later on. Paul later on, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he goes back to preach Christ unto the Israelites, his own brethren. 
We'll, we'll watch Paul go out, come back to Antioch, go out, come back to Antioch, go out, come back to Antioch, circle back through Jerusalem. And then one day as he's out, he's like, I'm going back to preach the gospel. I want Israel to be saved. And he's going to come with the same gospel, the same word sent, and like the word of God was sent. And, and this is where this is at. So what I do when I read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it says, according to the scriptures. Paul's up there exhorting them concerning the reading of the law and the prophets. And I love this. I don't know if he's sitting there and the Holy Spirit shows him Jesus on that page that they're reading that day. Scrolls open. Like, do you hear? If you listen and you look for Jesus on every page in the reading of the, of the Old Testament, you'll find references. The Psalms, is, they're, they're filled with prophetic references to the Messiah. So what did I do? I want to find those references. Now, I was searching before the Bible was digitized. So I didn't get to do a Google search or let alone a database search or, or that. And by the time I was searching for that, I didn't even have a study Bible. I had a very poor concordance, didn't have that. And so what do you do? I just start, as I read my Bible, I'm like asking the Holy Spirit, show me the references of the resurrection. Because this is the issue. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, without the resurrection, we are what? We're pitiable. Then, then our, our faith is empty. This is, this is worth nothing. So when he goes out to preach the gospel, the word of salvation sent, Jew first, right? Then the Gentile. He's in the synagogue. He's preaching. There, there are Jews there. And now back to Acts 13, and I'm ready to roll. Okay? Now, I had a much easier time finding the references for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Dying, the references to the death of Jesus are much easier to find in the scriptures. Okay? That the Messiah would die. He would suffer. Much easier to find. To find those references that the Holy Spirit put in concerning the resurrection, I'm like, I would read, I'm like, where are these? I know they're there. I just don't know them yet. Well, let's back to Acts 13. Get back there. I'm there. Verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Now, here Paul, he, he in, in the word of salvation being sent, he starts with the crucifixion. And he starts with why the rulers did it. First of all, he says they didn't know him. Had they known that Jesus is the one, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. So part of his being despised and rejected of men was to fulfill the prophecies that his own would not receive him. So then the rulers of his own people, Israel, crucified him. They didn't know him. In fact, when he was on the cross, they'd say scoffing, mocking things. You saved others. You can't save yourself. Hey, if you come down and save yourself, then we'll believe on you. And that's actually the fulfillment of what the prophets wrote. The ones reading the prophets moment by moment, day by day, if they were faithful to open the scrolls as they were supposed to do every Sabbath, they would have read these things. But Isaiah tells us their eyes would be blinded and their ears would be deafened. When Jesus comes, and now the second reason why they crucified him, Paul says that they, they crucified him. Well, let me, let me read this. Uh, 
Gospel of John, since I referenced that, says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. John 1.10. That's, that's this understanding of what was around Jesus. Secondly, though they read the law and the prophets every Sabbath, they didn't know the scriptures. Now, let's, let's be honest. We've come now full circle. We can talk about missionaries being sent out to, right? And I name the places. But you do realize that there are others who sense that they need to be sent to this country to preach the gospel. It's kind of a sad statement, isn't it? You think of Scotland, all the people they sent out, right? And now there are Calvary Chapel missionary pastors who are like, Lord's calling me to Scotland. I got to go preach the Christ to the, to the Scots. And the Scots sent the gospel out all over the world. And now we're looking at this. Guess what? There are missionaries being sent here by Christ to preach Christ to this country. Now, you see how this works. And in the not knowing what is read in the scriptures, they didn't recognize their Messiah. They failed to see him. Isaiah, I almost did what John did this morning in the introduction. Isaiah is how they say it in London, England. Isaiah he prophesied that Jesus would be despised, rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as our faces, as it were, from him. And as they're contem- condemning Jesus, they're fulfilling it. And again, as Paul is, is taking the word of salvation as being sent, he's actually talking that the scriptures revealed in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of the Son of God. And he says there was no cause for death in him. I love reading the statements and the testimonies of you study the Gospels. They're all very clear to say they found no fault in him. Pilate washes his hands and says, there's nothing wrong with this man. He's trying to he's trying to not get hooked in that thing. I don't think he's going to be able to wash his guilt away anyway. But this place of founding no cause of death in him, that's verse 28, they ask Pilate to crucify him. Pilate says, why? What wrong has he done? What do they start saying all the more? Crucify him. And then when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him. You see that phrase in 29. This is is 1 Corinthians 15.3. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures and they fulfilled everything written concerning him. Well, think about this one. It is written when Peter says, I'll never deny you. Jesus says it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter Peter says what? "I'll I'll never deny you. See, and as these things are being fulfilled concerning what is written, they take him down from the tree, lay him into the tomb. Now, that's a fascinating, right? It's fascinating to study the prophecies of Jesus that are written in the law and the prophets. It's said 300 specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, identifying himself as the Messiah, that could not be fulfilled. There is absolutely no possible way outside of that this was deliberate. Now, one of my Bible teachers that I listened to as he taught the Bible and would go through things, he would say, okay, consider this. For Jesus to fulfill all 300 of those prophecies, for anyone to fulfill all those prophecies, he says, it's beyond any mathematical chance in any way, shape, or form. And he just started taking compound probability. These 300 prophecies, and he lays the whole thing out. He says, okay, now here's the example. He says, 
the likeness of one man fulfilling all those prophecies in his life, death, and resurrection, things they did to his body when, he, when they wrapped him in a tomb, the tomb they placed him in. You go through all 300 of those. By the way, there's 300 more in typology prophecies, in Jesus in the likeness of Jonah, in the likeness of Joseph. As you see the type of Christ, those are also exciting. right? You find Christ on every page. Do you realize that his, his death and resurrection has so much prophecy that if you took one silver, silver dollar and marked it and you threw it out into the sea of silver dollars the size of Texas, because Texas is really big, and you fill Texas up in all the area of Texas to a foot and a half of silver dollars, okay, now some of you are calculating the money. How much is that? I don't know the, I don't know the dollar amount. But the sheer fact that Jesus would fulfill all those prophecies, a foot and a half silver dollars all the way through Texas, and there's one marked silver dollar in there. To do that by chance, that, that Jesus fulfilled all 300 of those, the equivalent of you getting in a helicopter, going flying over all of Texas and bending down and picking up one silver dollar out of that whole bit of silver dollars, and you pick out the marked one. That's the odds, as it's been calculated, concerning that Jesus really is the Savior. Now, where does salvation sent? Uh, I'll be honest. Right? This is not by chance. This is overwhelmingly deliberate that it would be written in advance. So when Paul comes and he's laying it out before them, it says, the rulers didn't know him, they killed him. He was condemned. They wrapped his body, put him up. And then 1330, God raised him from the dead. Now, some of those prophecies concerning the resurrection, and do you know where I found these references to the written according to the scriptures that he would rise again? Did I find them in the Old Testament? No, I found them in the book of Acts. I found them as the apostles expounded upon what the Scripture said, because they don't have any New Testament when they're going out and preaching Christ. What are they preaching when they take out the Word of God? They're preaching from law and prophets. They're opening up the Psalms. They're reading what Moses wrote. They're reading the prophets. Now, in that resurrection, it's the absolute heart of the gospel. That's why it was the gong show in front of the philosophies of the world on Mars Hill. We, resurrection, ha ha, laughed him off the stage. And he wasn't doing stand-up comedy. The resurrection is the absolute heart of the gospel. Everything Paul has set up to this point, all the promises, the prophecies concerning the Messiah lead to this one pivotal truth. God raised him from the dead. One quarter. And it's something like one in ten, one, one chance in ten to the fifteenth power. Or something. If it, again, I haven't looked at those numbers for a long time overwhelming, there's no probable way this happens by accident. There's no way Jesus arranges the detail like all the scoffers and mockers say. Oh, he knew the prophecies, so he did them all. For him to be able to do that is mathematically impossible. You couldn't deliberately do that unless the scriptures were that way. And this is the reality. He either is or he is not. And that's where C.S. Lewis comes and writes and says, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's exactly who he says he is. And that's where this comes out. 
So in that witness of the resurrection in verse 31, Paul identifies, and he does not go to the scripture references right away. He says, the fact of the resurrection was witnessed by those who walked with Jesus uh, for three years. They came with him from Galilee. They came down. They saw him crucified, and it's those that Jesus appeared to. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Forty days. They saw him on and off for 40 days. And they were witnesses to the people. And this we declare unto you, good news, right? Glad tidings, right there in verse 32. The gospel. We have in this record that John the baptizer was preaching repentance. He was was declaring ahead of the Messiah He was declaring the kingdom of God. He was declaring, but after Jesus dies and rises again, now it switches to evangelizo, okay? Where we get our English word evangelize, the good news, the the glad tidings, and it's the promise which was made to their fathers. They're reading this, the, the scriptures given to the fathers, the promise made to the fathers, they're reading it every week. And just like many today who go to churches and they'll have what... This is now the second Sunday after this, and then you open up your calendar, your church calendar, and you'll read these scriptures today. Now, when they were chose, they probably made a lot of richness of, of you know, a church calendar. We read this today, and then and they just keep shrinking the amount of scripture that is read, and then those scriptures are read, and then the people hearing them no longer understand what they're reading, and they're hearing these things week by week, and they hear these things, but it's never expounded upon, it's never understood, it's never, it's never taught, and, and the teaching of the, excuse me, taught, taught, taught concerning the understanding. I mean, think of teaching the resurrection. I was never taught how to be born again growing up. Again, the witness of the resurrection, declaring to glad tidings. I was never taught the good news the, of the death and resurrection that fulfilled the promises for the children of, of Abraham. And that he raised up Jesus. Again, now this is, if you you hear it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfills the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, when you ever see a promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises of, those are all references of the prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, because those promises that need to be fulfilled can only be fulfilled in that one of theirs who comes from Abraham, right, and comes through David, which was how he entered into this, that he would come and he would fulfill that. Well, some of these are eternal promises. Who can fulfill an eternal promise? Only one that lives forever. Hence the resurrection. He raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. You want the first reference? He says, today, he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You know what Paul says? That's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, when you read Psalm 2, it's a description of the king sitting on the throne. The son of God will sit on the throne. And Jesus being the son of God and has come, he is crucified in his first coming. If he's going to fulfill Psalm 2, what must take place? He must rise again from the dead. Psalm 2 is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order for Jesus to sit on the throne ruling in this world, he has to He has to be alive. And this is what I love about And now you're understanding how the scriptures, you see how they missed that? You see how they lost that? You see how they would look at these things? And let's go look at Psalm 2. We got, we got time. 
I think. Do we have time? Psalm 2. We got time. Psalm 2, prophetic psalm of the, of the kingdom of the Messiah. Why do the heathens rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their, their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Speaking of the judgment to come. And look at six. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord said unto me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So while, while this psalm is being written, it's ultimately prophetic of the kingdom and the reign of Messiah. And then eight, ask of me and I shall give the heathen for thy inheritance. Now, Paul is out preaching to the heathen. Isn't that cool? That to me is, and he gives the reference. And if you go look at Psalm 2, and then verse 9 speaks how Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, break them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the instruction to the kings are, kiss the son. Right? Kiss the son lest he be angry. Now, I love stuff like this as it starts to unfold. Now, I'm only going through 39 tonight. So if you're wondering, right, is he going to be talking all night long? Not tonight. Other nights I will. I remember when we'd start fellowshipping with my brother, we just, we, we just, my wife and I just started walking with the Lord and we'd love to hear him talk about the things the Lord, things of the Lord. He'd talk about church. He'd talk about the stuff in the scriptures and he started, he just started tying things that they'd talk about. I, I remember his story, just intrigued. Their church would go out and preach Christ to Ireland because his pastor's name was O'Keefe. Right? He's like, I'm going to go back and preach Christ to the people of where my people came from. And my brother would go there and he would talk about how just following the Holy Spirit and doors would open up and then pretty soon they're preaching Christ. And he'd talk about going to Mexico. He says Mexico, where he went, they'd be preaching Christ, but, but there was a mixture because there would be those. And he said one time they were, the church they were involved with, he's like, the Holy Spirit showed him, he's like, he's going to hit you in the forehead and try to knock you down, like slain in the Spirit, because that had come to Mexico. And my brother just says like, He's up there sharing things and doing that. And then the, the, the guy came over and was going like to like, hit him on the forehead and slay him in the spirit. And, and my brother just describes it. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, it's coming. He says, he says, bend your knees. All my brother did was bend his knees and then he didn't fall over. You know, and just like, then it's like, this isn't what this is about. And you might not know it, but my brother is whiter than I am and he speaks great Spanish. Things he learned way back then. And then the Lord uses them as he sends them out. How? Before I get too many sidetracks, I want us all to see Paul goes out with the word of salvation sent, preaches Christ according to the scriptures, and he gets on to the resurrection from the dead, and he begins to give the references. Hey, when you preach Christ, you're not a salesman. You're not selling something they don't want. You have something that is true. 34, Paul says to them, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now this one actually blows me away. Back to 1 Corinthians 15.4, the references of the resurrection according to the scriptures. Resurrection according to the scriptures. Resurrection according to the scriptures. We've been there tonight. So you have the death and resurrection according to the scriptures, right? So the death according to the scriptures. 
And he comes to this phrase, the sure mercies of David. And I'm like, huh? So without, without the Spirit, okay, everybody got that? 1 Corinthians 15.4, the reference of the resurrection according to the Scriptures. You know what Paul does when he goes out? He says, sure mercies of David. God promised David that there would never cease to be one of his seeds sitting on a throne. Right? Remember the promise in 1 Samuel? When, when David says, I'm gonna, Lord, I want to build you a house. Nathan says, go do all that's in your heart. Nathan walks away. The, the, the Spirit of God says to Nathan, go back and tell him. He's not going to build the, the temple. But out of that comes this, God says, you, you're not to build me a house. But you know what God says to David? I will build you a house. The sure mercies of David is a reference to the fulfillment of, that David's descendants would be on the throne forever. Why does the Messiah, the seed of David, why does the Messiah have to rise again from the dead? Why is it now that we're not running around thinking God has broken his promises to David because there's no king of Israel on the throne? We're not troubled because Psalm 2 speaks of the throne of the Son of God, right? 1334 speaks of the sure mercies of David, which is actually a quote the sure mercies of David comes in the promise given and written in the book of Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah. Just a little reference tucked away in. You know what? Holy Spirit, Apostles Doctrine. You know what Saul, now Paul, you know what he says? The resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfills the word of prophecy given to Isaiah, Isaiah concerning the sure mercies of David. And when God says that David will not fail to have a man on the throne, what do you now know? Hasn't failed. Where's the throne of Jesus? Well, right now, his throne in heaven. But you read when he comes back, you know what he's going to do when he comes back? Thrones are going to be set here on earth. Therefore, he says in another psalm, so on to 1335, I'm giving you tonight that which I received, which was the references in the prophets concerning the resurrection, according to the scriptures. I searched for him for months and I found nothing. And then I started, like, oh, I just had to get, oh, I started listening to pastors teach the Bible and they would, and then I had all these unanswered questions and little by little, I would read somewhere, I'm like, and then you'd hear a sermon. I was like, there's answers. There's answers. I love that it was before the internet. Right now, if it's so easy to get, what do we do when something is given to us easily? Well, we don't understand the value of what it took to dig that out. The other reference in the psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Psalm 16. Beautiful psalm. This is 1610. This is the heart of the gospel message. This is, this is direct. Okay. I would read these other references. Okay, Jesus must fulfill king on the throne. Okay, I get it. He's got to be alive. Jesus must fulfill the promises given to, to David to always have a man on the throne. Okay, he's got to be alive. This one's direct. God will not allow his holy one to see corruption. Peter on the day of Pentecost stands up quoting this same psalm and says, Hey, David's not talking about himself. I don't know if he talked that way. I would have. David is not talking about himself. In fact, those of you who have been to Israel, almost every group that we've gone, we make our way over there. We go out, we go out the Saint, not St. Saint Stephen's Gate. 
uh, what's that gate? And we turn around and we look at all the bullet holes from 1967 when they rushed that and they were trying to break that gate. Is that St. Stephen's? No, St. Stephen's is along the eastern, southeast corner. And we go out that gate and we, we study the history and then we walk a block and a half away. You go by the place where they think the upper room is and you walk a little bit farther and you say, oh, the tomb of David is over here. And that's what Peter said on, on Pentecost. David's tomb is here. Paul, now traveling away, he comes to the same reference. He affirms the promise, which of necessity has to be for the Messiah. Quoting Psalm 1610, the heart of the message, the Messiah was put to death and resurrected, and the Psalms declare that Jesus would not see corruption. For David, after he served his generation by the will of God, fell asleep. In other words, he died. That's clear in the record. You can go to his tomb. Do you think it's his tomb? It's his tomb. He was buried with the fathers, saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Now, here's a fun thing for you. And I go see the garden tomb just outside the, the, the Muslim-controlled bus station. I mean, outside the garden of, of uh, Gordon's Calvary right there where, where many believe this could be the location the skull, Golgotha, it was all there. It, it seems to match the biblical description, all that. It doesn't feel like it when you're there. That's okay, right? But if you study the evidence, in that garden they found this huge cistern of water, which would have been for, for holding water. So a garden, don't think of garden like we do, where we get our nice kohlrabi in a row and our carrots. And over here we got the tomatoes and cucumbers and squash. Don't put squash in your garden. Uh, not that kind of garden. You know what kind of garden this is? It's a vineyard. It's a vineyard. You know what they found in that garden? A wine press. This was a, this was a garden of a wealthy. And they found a tomb in there, and it was all carved out. And it matches every biblical reference concerning John being able to come in and kneel down and look in. The stone was rolled away, and he could see where the body was laid. That's because in this tomb, different than the normal configuration of tombs they found, the body was laid not behind the preparation room, but to the right of the preparation room. And you could see through the opening... From the door, you could see through the opening to the room, place where the body was laid, and you could see where Jesus would have been. Now, what I don't like about it, and all their marking of historical sites in Israel, they put this big red Greek symbol on there that says this is a, an official place where they, where they know the church gathered. Now, okay, I get it. But why do you have to paint that on the wall inside the tomb? So they found that the early church was gathering there for, for worship services. You know what they did with that tomb? As my mic slips away. Come on back, Mike. There we go. You know what they did with that tomb? They tested it for something. They tested it for decay. I mean, limestone, right? If there's decay, it's going to go into the stone. Right? They're going to be able to detect it. And you know what they discovered? No corruption. Psalm 1610 would not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Lazarus was dead how many days? 
four days, right? What's Martha say when they say when Jesus says roll away the stone? What does she say? Don't do it. But Lord, he stinks. I think I love the King James. He stinketh. But do you realize by Jesus being placed in the tomb and they wrapped his body and what they did? And again, don't trouble yourself over three full days and three full nights. You're not planning a vacation where you want to make sure you, you're putting your money and you want to get all the time at your hotel. And he, again, if he was placed in the tomb before the ending of that first day, before sundown, he would have been in the tomb according to the way the Jews count days. That's day one. So he probably didn't spend three full days and three full nights. Again, right? It's said of Jonah, three days, right? Or I think it's of Jonah, three nights in the heart of the fish. The, the idea that Jesus would be three days. Again, you can count them. And any part of the day counts. It's, the military does that too, don't If you owe them days, it's just part of the day counts. That tomb, no corruption. Jesus was probably not in the tomb for, what is it, 24, 24, 24, 72 hours. He was probably not in there that long. Maybe just over, something like that, right? And guess what? No corruption. Now, is that the site? I don't know. But the, the, red, the red marking on the wall sure must agree. But what I do know is that when you go there and you come to the truth of the scriptures and you have, you have his death according to the scriptures, you have a place that looks like the skull. And then you go over there and you come to the place that matches the biblical description of a tomb that would fill, fulfill all that. And it's in the right part of the city. Now, don't you love, don't you love that everybody has been able to make the archaeology in this world match the Bible? See, because every time someone goes to disprove the Bible with archaeology, what do they end up doing? Agreeing with what the Bible said. So then after a while, you know what the archaeologists would do when they're going to look somewhere? Then they started referencing the Bible to find out where to dig. And on top of that, again, I love this about the city of two gates that overlooks the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. When they found it, they consulted the Bible to find out what it could be. That's the sure word, because then the Bible had all this record. Well, we're wrapping up here today. Jesus saw no corruption, Psalm 16 said about it. Therefore, let it be known among you, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known among you, brethren. Now, this is good news. If we're just talking death and resurrection unto knowledge website, I'm writing you a blog, I give you all the information, and if all I gave you tonight was just information and I sounded like a website to you, you missed it. Because where Paul goes next, he says, we, through this man, that through this man, capital M, through Jesus Christ is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And now it's no longer information. It is the hope of eternal life. Your sins can be forgiven. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Sin entered through one man. And, and now in Christ Jesus is preached forgiveness of sins. Right? The Lord told them after his resurrection, go and preach. And he says that Luke 24, 47, that in Christ Jesus is the remission of sins. I love this. So you take all this information and you, you take all this truth of the gospel and now 
This is the word of salvation is, in Christ Jesus, you can be forgiven sins. What is the most needful thing of all of mankind the whole world over? Forgiveness of sins. For without the forgiveness of sins, one will die and no longer see God and spend eternity with him. You cannot proclaim forgiveness of sins without the, the faith of believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you pronounce upon someone salvation any other way, then you become an enemy of the cross. You ever consider that? If you say there's salvation in any other, then you're disagreeing with the scriptures. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And then we'll, we'll wrap up in 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, I love this verse. Pharisees hate this verse. I love this verse. Pharisees were good in their outward show. And they, they took the law of Moses and formed it into a keeping of the law in a particular way to proclaim their outward righteousness unto other people. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. He says, the, heaven, the, the kingdom of heaven is open for sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous. I come to call the sinners to repentance. Well, it turns out everyone's a sinner. <coughs> And the worst problem to be at was to think you were righteous through the keeping of the law. What Paul says when he goes out to all the Jews, he says, everyone who believes is justified from all things, right? from all things that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You know what justified means? Rendered righteous. So forgiveness of sins, because when you're a sinner, in God's eyes, you're not righteous. We call sin unrighteousness. Forgiveness of sin, but then there's something else. It's restored righteousness. Restoring all things. Justified from all things. And so we usually say justified means justified never sinned. Well, it's not quite accurate. Justified is I am rendered in righteous. I'm rendered righteous in God's sight in forgiveness of all my sins. The fact never changes that I did all this, all this sin contrary to God. But through the power of the death of Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice for sin, the power of the resurrected life, now we can freely preach in Christ Jesus, you can be forgiven your sins and receive his righteousness. And that's what being an ambassador is all about. When Paul goes out to the Corinthian church, he describes unto them, he said, I'm an ambassador in Christ. What God was doing in the world in Christ. So when God sent Christ into the world and what God was doing in Christ, he was reconciling the world to himself. He was not reconciling, right? He was not changing his position. He was not changing the law. He was not changing his judgments. He was doing what? He was reconciling the world. How did he do it? He reconciled the world to himself through the death of his son. Now, big deal. 
And not only did he reconcile the world to himself, and then he extends peace, and, and one can be reconciled to God and, and reconciled, but then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 5.21 to describe justified. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Galatians 3 describes Jesus becoming a curse, being hung on the tree. So according to the law, Jesus is a sinner, a curse, right? The idea that he deserved to die. Paul said in this gospel, he didn't deserve to die, but he died anyway. He became a curse. He died on the cross, but then something took place. He rose again from the dead. Now, not only can he impart life to those who believe and receive him, that he can impart forgiveness and it's real. Hey, if I come to you and say, tell me all your sins and I forgive you, right? Based off of what I've done, you'd say, who are you? And that's what we do with Christ, isn't it? Who is Christ that he can forgive all our sins? Well, he's the righteous, spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed. But when he rises from the dead, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's the great mystery that Paul tells the church at Colossae? What's the great mystery of how this all works out? The great mystery is Christ in you. Born again. Why did the church ever move away from the, from the teaching of the regeneration? You ask a Catholic years ago before they were prepped by John Paul II around 2000 using the Eucharist to get everybody to come back to the Catholic Church, come back to the Catholic Church, come back, we're the right ones. Before that, you would ask a Catholic, are you born again? They say, absolutely not. Now they have to change their language again. Right? So I'd leave you with this. 1339, and here's the word. All who believe, everyone who believes, you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in his death and resurrection, you born of him, you know what the Bible says? You're rendered righteous in his sight. Yes, you, after all you've done, all the, all the wickedness in your heart, all the sin you ever committed, you come to faith in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul tells to Titus? He says, when you're in Crete, make sure they know this. He says, that it's not according to works, but it's according to mercy by the washing and renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit when you believe upon Jesus Christ. He makes you right in the sight of God. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Acts 13. Lord, I teach us more and more uh, of you. All that you've done, all that you are. Lord, strengthen our faith tonight to know the assurance of forgiveness and justified in your sight. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if that's not enough for you tonight and you want to know how sure this is by grace and faith and how sure it is that you're right in God's sight, read Romans 1 through Romans 8. Eight chapters. And you just say, Lord, I got to know. Will you teach me? I got to know the certainty of this word of truth concerning who has sinned, who can be made right. Is it works-based or is it not works-based? What is faith? What is grace? What is sin? And ask the Lord all those questions and say, teach me. I stand up here and say, I am righteous and holy in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I in and of myself am not holy. I, in and of myself, am not righteous. 
but through faith in Jesus Christ, I am rendered righteous or I am justified. And it's not by the keeping of the law, not by the keeping of Luther's small catechism that I was taught growing up. Not in the keeping of that, not in the keeping of the sacraments, the seven of them that the Catholic Church teaches. That's how you're rendered righteous. I hope I get in. But I declare unto you, you you today, you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be justified by the faith that is in him. Now that turns out to leave a different impression on us as we live and walk in this world, does it not? I'm right in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Am I a sinner? I might be worse than some. Right? Are they? Uh, and it comes down to this. All that sin has been forgiven. Amen? Yes, Jim.